Hello, humans. On the evening of Friday, September 15th, 2023, began the Jewish New Year. On the Sabbath, September 16th, the people started observing Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the year. Now, the biblical name for this holiday is Yom HaTuruah, and it means the day of shouting, the day of blasting. Now, that word, Teruah, is used to describe either an alarm for war, a loud battle cry, the blowing of a trumpet, a blast for a march, or a shout of joy. During the Rosh Hashanah synagogue services, the shofar, the, the ram's horn, it's blown 100 times. This is known as the Feast of Trumpets, which is the beginning of the civil new year. This observance, it commences 10 days of repentance ending on Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. Now that word Yom means a day or a period of time. And the word Kippur, it means atonement. And so on the Day of Atonement, the shofar is blown at the end of the evening prayer service for the first time since Rosh Hashanah. So let's read about it. In Numbers 29, verses 1 to 11, it is written, Now in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall also have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It will be to you a day for blowing trumpets. You shall offer a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, and seven male lambs, one year old without defect. Also their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Offer one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offerings of the new moon and its grain offering and the continual burnt offering uh, and its grain offering, their drink offerings according to their ordinance for a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. Then, on the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall humble yourselves. You shall not do any work. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a soothing aroma, one bull, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old, having them without defect, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs, one male goat for a sin offering besides the sin offering of atonement and the continual burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offerings. It's a lot. It really was a lot. The old sacrificial system was truly a lot. In ancient Judaism, the high priest sacrificed an animal to cover for his own sins and the sins of his family and then the sins of the nation. Now this holy day was a day of fasting and prayer. When the high priest had finished with the atonement sacrifice, a goat was released into the wilderness. Now this scapegoat, it symbolized Israel's sins being cast out and to never return. We see this in Leviticus chapter 16. In the temple, the holy of holies, it was separated from the congregation by a veil from floor to ceiling. And it was entered only once every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest offered the blood sacrifice of atonement. 
when Yeshua, Jesus Christ, died on the cross, that thick veil that had once separated holiness from the congregation was torn from top to bottom, as we see in Luke 23. Christ came as high priest and entered the holy of holies, heaven itself, once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own holy blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Believers in Yeshua, Jesus Christ, accept his sacrifice on the cross as the final atonement for sins. It is written, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And it is written that when Jesus, the Messiah, returns, all of Israel will look on him whom they pierced, and they will repent. That is prophesied, Zechariah 12.10. And on that day of repentance, Israel will be forgiven and permanently restored, grafted back in. So we're going to talk about atonement. The English word atonement comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, which compounds the words one meant with the preposition at. So you look at that word atonement, at one meant, or at unity. Now in some ways, this word has more in common with the idea of reconciliation than our modern concept of atonement, which, while having oneness as its result, emphasizes rather the idea of how that unity is achieved by someone atoning for a wrong or wrongs committed. Atonement in Christian theology concerns how Christ achieved this onement between God and sinful humanity. The need for atonement comes from the separation that has come about between God and humanity because of sin. For it is written, all of us were born into sin because of Adam and his seed, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, in both Old and the New Testaments, there is the understanding that God has distanced himself from his creations on account of their wicked rebellion. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, the prophet tells the people of Judah, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. In Romans 5, 8-11, Paul wrote, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, therefore, atonement is the means provided by God to effect reconciliation. The atonement is required on account of God's holiness and justice so that wrongs will be made right once again. However, in order to fully understand the depth beyond the surface of atonement, we need to examine and understand both 
the Old and the New Testaments. So let's start with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, which which is the Jewish Tanakh, right? We have the T and K, the, the Torah, which is the, the law. We have the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which is the writings. The Tanakh is our Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the, the sacrificial system was the means by which sins were atoned for. Ritual purity was restored. Iniquities were forgiven. The unclean became clean. And an amicable relationship between God and the offerer of the sacrifice was reestablished. In Leviticus 17.11, Moses, conveying God's message to the Israelites, said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So, in essence, this is the basic operating principle for atonement in the Old Testament. The substitutionary offering of the blood of an innocent, slaughtered animal in place of the life of the guilty human being who offered it. However, there have been significant scholarly debates regarding whether this accurately portrays the ancient Israelite understanding of atonement. So, let's discuss this meaning of what it, what it means to, to atone. Well, first, there exists some disagreement over the precise meaning of the Hebrew word, which is kafer, which means to atone. Now, among the more popular suggestions regarding the definition of this word are the following. It means to cover, to remove, to wipe out, to appease, to make amends, to redeem or ransom, to forgive, and to avert or divert. But recently, in our historical timeline, one influential theory is that atonement has little or nothing to do with the individual offerer, but it serves only to purify the tabernacle or the temple and the furniture within from the impurities that attach to them on account of the community's sins. Now this theory, though okay, most probably correct in what it does affirm, it, it unnecessarily restricts the effects of atonement to the tabernacle and its furniture. There are, there are, to be sure, texts that specifically mention atonement being made for the altar. However, the repeated affirmation for most of the text in Leviticus and in Numbers is that the atonement is made for the offerer. Atonement results in forgiveness of sins for the one bringing the offering. Now, as far as the precise meaning of Kafer is concerned, it, it may be that some of the suggested meanings, they actually overlap and, and that a particular concept is more prevalent in some passages and another one in others. As always, in Hebrew scripture, the word must be determined by its proper context. Now, there has always been a debate over the significance of the offerer laying a hand or his hands on the head of the sacrificial animal. This has traditionally been understood as an identification of the offerer with the sacrifice and a transference of the offerer's sins to the sacrifice. 
Now recently, however, this has been disputed and the argument has been made instead. It only signifies that the animal does indeed belong to the offerer, who therefore has the right to offer it. But again, this is unduly restrictive. It should rather be seen as complementary to what has traditionally been understood by this gesture. Indeed, in the rite for the Day of Atonement, when the priest lays his hands on the one goat, confesses Israel's sins and wickedness, and in, in doing so, he is said to be putting the sins on the goat's head. Now, this would seem to affirm the correctness of the traditional understanding. All sins are transferred to the goat that then gets, who gets, it gets cast out from their presence. So the sacrifice is thus best seen as substitutionary. It takes the place of the offerer. It dies in his place. Now, the relationship between God and the offerer. So second, granted that the word kofer has to do with the forgiveness of sins, the question arises as to the... Uh, exact effect that it has on the relationship between God and the offerer. Now the question here is whether the effect is expiation or propitiation. So does the offering expiate the sin, wipe it out, erase it, remove it, or does it propitiate the one to whom the sacrifice is offered? That is, does it appease and placate God so that the threat of God's wrath is removed? Now, in one respect, the distinction seems artificial. It seems logical that expiation, the erasure of sins, naturally results in propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath. On the other hand, the modern-day tendency to deny that God could possibly be a God of wrath makes that question relevant. In any case, there are certainly, in both religious and non-religious contexts, passages where something like appease or pacify, it appears to be the proper rendering of that word, kofer. Um, the effect of atonement is that sins are removed and forgiven, and God is appeased. Therefore, both expiation and propitiation are true results of atonement. Now, in conjunction with that last point, it is also important to note that there are a number of places where it is said that God himself does the action, does the kofer, that God is the one who makes atonement. Here's some examples. So Deuteronomy 21 verse 8 calls upon God, literally, to, and it's translated as forgive here, forgive your people Israel whom you have redeemed. In Deuteronomy 32 43, it is translated as atone. God will atone for his land and his people. Psalm 65.3, again, translated as forgive. It says, as for our transgressions, you forgive them. In 2 Chronicles 30.18-19, Hezekiah prays. And it's translated here as pardon. May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. Psalm 78:38 says that the Lord, being compassionate, forgave Israel's iniquity and did not destroy them. Psalm 79:9 9, 
asks God to forgive Israel's sins for the sake of his own name. In Isaiah 43.3, kofer is translated as ransom. And God says to Israel that he gave Egypt as their ransom. So he atoned them. In Ezekiel 16.63, God declares that he will forgive all the sins that Israel has committed. And so we see that in most of these passages, to provide atonement is to be understood as synonymous of to forgive. However, as many commentators have noted throughout history, in at least some of these passages, the thought is that God is either being called upon to take or is taking upon himself the role of high priest atoning for the sins of the people. Again, it is important to remember God's declaration in Leviticus 17.11 that he has given to the Israelites the blood of the sacrificial animals to make atonement for their sins. Atonement, no matter how it is conceived of or carried out, is a gift that God graciously grants to his covenant people. Now that leads us to a consideration of one particularly extremely relevant passage. Now again, in our English translations in our Bibles, it's separated by chapters, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. But if you look at the Isaiah scroll, it's continuous, right? So look at Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. Now in this text, a figure referred to as my servant, as we see in 52.13, or the Lord's servant is described as one who took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then we are told in 53.10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Now, there are many issues with regard to the proper interpretation of this servant song, as it's often called, uh, the suffering servant song of. One of them being whether the term translated guilt offering should really be thought of along the lines of the guilt offering that is described in the book of Leviticus, chapters 5 to 7. But if the traditional Christian understanding of this passage is correct, and I believe it is, we have here a picture of God himself assuming the role of high priest and atoning for the sins of his people by placing their iniquities and sins on his servant, a figure who is regarded by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament to be God's very own son, Christ Jesus. So, the Old Testament has a lot to say here about atonement and this suffering servant. Let's check out the New Testament and the relationship between the Testaments. So, when we come to the New Testament, four important initial points should be made. So, first... God's wrath against sin and sinners is just as much a New Testament concept and consideration as an Old Testament one, as I explained in great detail in my article that I published, Purge the Evil. 
God still considers those who are sinful and unrighteous to be his enemies if they are not in Christ. Wrath and punishment do await those who reject and refuse to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Why? Well, because they rejected their only means of salvation from God's wrath. Atonement is the means of averting this wrath. Therefore, if anyone rejects the covering of Christ, they will receive God's wrath and it will be completely consistent with his justice. Now, second, salvation is promised to those who come to God by faith in Christ Jesus. But there is still the problem of how God can at the same time be just himself and yet also be the one who justifies sinners and declares them righteous. God will not simply declare sinners to be justified unless his own justness is also upheld. Atonement is the way by which God is both just and the justifier. And third, as we saw in the Old Testament, ultimately God is the one who atones. So also in the New Testament, God is the one who provides the means for atonement. It is by his gracious initiative that atonement even becomes possible. If Jesus's death is the means by which atonement is achieved, it is God himself who presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. For it is written in Romans 3, 24-25, we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. It was God himself who, as it is written in John 3.16, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And it is written in 1 John 4.10, God himself sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And Romans 8.32 says that God did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all. Additionally, Christ himself was not an unwilling victim who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and got slammed into all this. Rather, no, Jesus was actively involved in the accomplishing of atonement by his sacrificial death. In John 10, 15 to 18, Jesus said, he willingly lays down his life for his sheep. He willingly lays down his life so that he can take it up again and he concludes in verse 18 by saying, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And for this reason, it is written in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It was divine appointment, divine timing. Fourth, the atoning sacrifice of the Son was necessary because ultimately the Old Testament sacrifices, they could not truly have provided the necessary atonement. It is written in Hebrews 10, 1-4, 
For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the portrayals of Christ's work of atonement, it, it has been common as of late to refer to the different images or the metaphors of atonement that appear in the New Testament. Now, this is understandable on one level, but on another level, it's something misleading about it. So, for example, when the New Testament authors speak of Christ as a sacrifice for sins, it is not evident that they intended for the reader to take this as imagery. No, rather, Christ, the Son, truly is a sacrifice offered by God the Father to literally take away sins and to bear in His own body the penalty that should have been placed on the sinners. Christ's sacrifice has an organic connection to the Old Testament sacrificial system as the full, final sacrifice. The author of Hebrews would not have considered this to be imagery. No, in fact, a better case could be made that from his perspective, from the writer of the Hebrews' perspective, Christ was the real sacrifice and all the other instances of sacrifices in the Old Testament were the imagery. So as we look at the different portrayals of Christ in his work of atonement in the New Testament, some of these may best be categorized as imagery or metaphor, while others perhaps are better described as a facet of or a window on atonement. It should also be noted that the individual portrayals, they do not exclude the others, and in some cases they actually overlap. So let's examine all this stuff that overlaps. Ransom. Now some passages in the New Testament speak of Christ's death as a ransom paid to set us free. Well, the same Greek word, lutron, which is translated as ransom in these passages, are rendered as redeem or redemption in other passages. And other forms of the same word are also translated redeem or redemption. We see this in Galatians, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, Revelation. A near synonym of these words is used in Revelation 5.9 and Revelation 14.4, referring to how Christ purchased people by his blood. Now, in most of these cases, the picture of Christ purchasing people is that of slaves who have been ransomed, redeemed, or purchased from the slave market, being set free from a life of slavery. Now, sometimes this is referred to as an economic view of atonement, though this label, it seems a bit crass. The purchase is not of commodity, but of human lives at the expense of Christ's own life and blood. And of course, many skeptics or unbelievers, they like to claim that Jesus, he, he, Jesus had to pay a ransom to Satan in order to get his children back. Well, 
listen, that's simply absurd because Satan is not even on an equal level to where he would possess the power to withhold anyone from the Lord. That's why he was cast down, right? He has no power. That's why he had to ask God in regards with Job. Simply put, the Lord is the judge, and it is as if the judge overruled the death sentence to those who who truly repented and they placed their faith in Christ Jesus, truly confessing that Jesus received what they deserved. Jesus paid their debt, and because of that, they're set free. It's like receiving a presidential pardon while you're on death row. Those who are ransomed are redeemed from a life of slavery to sin and to the law which in Acts 15.10 says, which is a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Because we were slaves to sin and destined for death, Jesus died so that we may truly live and be set free eternally in new glorified bodies on the new earth under the new heavens. Now another aspect of this crossover overlap, the curse bearer. In Galatians 3, 13 to 14, there is also the picture of Christ as one who bore the curse of the law in our place. Now, the language is especially striking because rather than saying that Christ bore the curse, Paul says Christ became a curse. Now, this is an especially forceful way of saying that Christ fully absorbed and received the curse of God's wrath that was meant for us. And of course, another aspect of this crossover uh, overlap is penalty bearer. Now, closely related to the curse bearer, this portrayal depicts Christ as one who has borne the legal consequences of our sins, consequences that we should have suffered. Rather, because Christ has borne the penalty, we are now declared to be innocent and righteous and no longer subject to condemnation. This idea stands behind much of the argumentation that Paul uses in Romans and Galatians, and it also intersects with other portrayals. Uh, passages representative of this picture can be seen in Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. It is also what should be understood by Peter's own description of Christ's death. In 1 Peter 3.18, he describes it as the just for the unjust as well as in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul states that Christ has become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then, of course, we have that debated word of propitiation. So, there are four passages where the NIV translation, the NIV uses atonement or atoning, in the translation to reflect either the Greek verb helaskomai uh, or its related nouns helasterion or helasmas. This is the word group that the, the LXX, the Septuagint, which by the way, the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament that predates Christ. So this is the word group that the Septuagint regularly uses to translate the Hebrew verb that we've been talking about, that kofer, and its related nouns. 
So there has been much debate about the precise meaning of the word in these four New Testament texts, in particular as to whether it means to expiate, to remove guilt, or to propitiate, to appease or avert the wrath. The better arguments have been maybe advanced in favor of propitiate, uh, but at the very least, propitiation is implied in expiation. The wrath that we should have suffered on account of our sins has been suffered by Jesus Christ instead. Although the specific word is not used, well, this is the understanding as well as those passages where it is said either that Christ died for our sins, as in 1 Corinthians 15.3, or in Galatians 1.4 where it says, Christ gave himself for our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Christ bore our sins. Or Matthew 26.28, where it says that his blood was poured out for forgiveness of sins. And then, of course, we have another uh, crossover, overlap here, the Passover. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5.7, Paul states that Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Although the Passover has not traditionally been thought of as a sacrifice for sins, though many scholars would argue that it was, and I agree, at the very least we should recognize a substitutionary concept at play here in Paul's use of the Passover idea. A lamb died so that the firstborn would live. And if you're not covered by the lamb's blood, you're going to experience the wrath. The Gospel of John here seems to have the same understanding. In John 1.29, Jesus is proclaimed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, in his account of Jesus' passion, in John 19.14, John narrates that his crucifixion was precisely at the same time as the slain of the Passover lambs. Which brings us to sacrifice. This theme has already been touched on in other portraits, but it's important to recognize the significance of this concept in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Hebrews. There, in the book of Hebrews, Christ is portrayed as both sacrifice and the high priest who offers the sacrifice. He came not, as, as some have argued, to show the absolute uselessness of the sacrificial system, but rather to be the full, final sacrifice within that system, that he would make propitiation, halaskomai, for the sins of the people. Now, the sacrificial system was useless to all of us mere humans born into sin because none of the sacrifices ever truly removed our guilt. Every sacrifice was only temporary and have to keep coming back every time, every year, Allah. But for this reason, Jesus discussing the possibility of who can possibly be saved. In Mark 10, 27, it, Jesus says, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, of course, it is not just the death of Christ that secures our redemption. No, his entire earthly life as well as his resurrection and heavenly intercessory work must also be recognized. But with regard, with, uh, regard to the work of atonement, per se, 
Christ's earthly life, his sinless, active, faithful obedience to the Father's will is what qualifies him to be the perfect sacrifice in accordance with his deity. For if Jesus had only been a mere man through the sinful seed of Adam, his sacrificial death would not suffice eternally. It is because Jesus is God that his sacrificial death is eternally sufficient and without end. His resurrection is the demonstration of God the Father's acceptance of the Son's sacrifice. Romans 4.25 says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So it's both the death and the resurrection that matter. But in conclusion, we, we truly need to understand the atonement fulfilled, how it is fulfilled completely and wholly. Now, sadly, we're talking about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Sadly, the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman Empire, and it was never rebuilt. For centuries upon centuries now, the Jewish people they have not been able to offer sacrifices in accordance to the law of Moses, which they claim is still binding on them. And yet every year they will observe Yom Kippur without actually observing what is written in the law. They have substituted sacrifices for prayer, good works, and charitable donations, hoping that their penalty of sins will be taken away without sacrifices. However, according to the law that they claim to live by, every Jewish believer who has rejected Yeshua, Jesus Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, they have all died in their sins for two reasons. One, they did not offer any sacrifices to atone for their sins. And two, they have rejected the only perfect and permanent sacrifice made through Jesus Christ. In Matthew 25, 31 to 46, Jesus explained that after the harvest, he is going to separate the wicked from his children, putting his sheep, his children, on his right, and the goats, the wicked, on the left. But why are the wicked declared to be goats? Because it stems from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Remember, in Leviticus chapter 16, the scapegoat is mentioned as part of God's instructions to the Israelites regarding the Day of Atonement. On this day, the high priest would first offer a sacrifice for his sins and those of his household, then he would perform sacrifices for the nation. From the Israelite community, the high priest was instructed to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. The priest brought the animals before the Lord and then they cast lots between the two goats. Well, one of those goats was to be a sacrifice. The other is to be the scapegoat. Now, the first goat was slaughtered for the sins of the people and its blood was used to cleanse the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar. After the cleansing, the live goat was brought to the high priest. Laying his hands on the scapegoat, the high priest was to confess over it all the wickedness, sins, rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, put them on the goat's head, 
he then sent the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone actually appointed for that task. The goat carried on itself all their sins to a remote place outside. And the man who was in charge of it, he released it into the wilderness. Now, symbolically, the the scapegoat took on the sins of the Israelites, removed the guilt from them. Now, for Christians, this is a foreshadowing of not only Christ, but also of the wicked on Judgment Day. Christ is the complete atonement for our sins. In many ways, he embodies each aspect of the Day of Atonement. Now, we are told in Hebrews 4.14, he is our great high priest. Well, Revelation 13.8 also tells us he is the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world as a sacrifice for our sins. And he is our scapegoat. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sins were laid on Christ. He bore our sins just as the scapegoat bore the sins of the Israelites. Isaiah 53 verse 6 prophesied Christ's acceptance of the sin burden says all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way but the lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him after the sins were laid on the scapegoat it was considered unclean and it was driven into the wilderness in essence the goat was cast out the same happened to jesus he was crucified outside of the city. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 12, it says, He was despised and forsaken of men. He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jesus embodied what the scapegoat represented the removal of sins from the perpetrators. However, on Judgment Day, it is written that the wicked will be separated and they will be declared as goats and they will be cast out. Thus, like a pastura pipet, uh, an eyedropper, or a sponge, Christ Jesus absorbed all sin and death unto himself only to release it on the goats on the day of judgment when he casts them away into what scripture refers to as outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth so when you read such scriptures as psalm 5 which is david's prayer of protection from the wicked and Psalm 10, which is a prayer for the overthrow of the wicked. May you know and understand the greatness of God's love. God loves the righteous, his children, so much that he absorbed all the pain, all the suffering, sin, and death in life in order to separate all who are wicked from all who are righteous to place the punishment back on the wicked and then cast them away 
also that the righteous children of God can dwell in eternal joy with the Lord who is the great shepherd. It was prophesied in Isaiah 25a and it is written as truth in Revelation 21:4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In the end, through the great reversal, God will cast the scapegoats away so that the children of God, the sheep, may have eternal life with eternal joy with the shepherd, Jesus. However, we must remember God desires all people to be saved. All people. So, so what are we going to do? What, what are we doing or not doing to the Lord with every action that we do or do not do to other people? Are we feeding the hungry? Are we giving drink to the thirsty? Are we welcoming the stranger? Are we providing clothes to those who need to be clothed? Are we comforting the sick? Are we visiting those in prison? Are we stopping along our travels in order to help someone in need, even if that someone appears to be our perceived enemy? Are we the Good Samaritan? Are we loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us? Are we forgiving others? Now that we know that everything we do or do not do to others is actually done unto the Lord. How does this knowledge change our perspectives on how we should live our lives? How does it change our perspectives on how we should respond to people? Now that we know so many Jewish people right now are they're observing 10 days of repentance prior to the Day of Atonement, but let us repent. Let us repent of any hatred in our hearts towards them and all others. May we pray that their hearts will no longer be hardened so that their eyes, their ears will be opened in order to receive the truth of Yeshua, Jesus Christ, and that they might be saved. And because this entire message was centered around the people of Israel. I will conclude by reading Romans 11, 17 to 36. It is written, But if some of the branches were broken off, by the way, those are the Jewish people, the Israelites. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive, olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Well, you will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Yes, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, 
if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Lord, we pray for Israel and all of your children of the natural branches that they return to you and be grafted in again. And we pray for all others to come to the knowledge of truth as well so that all the fullness of the Gentiles may come in. And of course, it seems impossible. But we know that what is impossible for man is possible for you. Give you all the praise and glory in your name, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Amen.